Good morning. We'd like to welcome you here as we come together as God's people to sing his praises and to learn from him and to fellowship with one another and with him. Please stand and join us as we sing his praises together.
here to worship you because you are good and merciful and faithful and we owe everything to you. So today accept our worship as pleasing in your sight. Let it bring glory to you and in our worship let your spirit bring transformation to us. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Just a couple of things to highlight. Again, next Sunday will be the third Sunday in Lent, and worship will be at 8, 20, 9, 40, and 11, um, each uh, as a regular schedule. Uh, even though there is a college break, we're continuing with that schedule. Uh, also, Easter baptism has been a practice that we've done for many, many years, and we will again this year. So if you're going to be here uh, Easter, which is March 31st, if you're going to be here that weekend and you're interested in being baptized... Uh, let, uh, let me know. Uh, you can send me an email or drop me a note to talk to me today, and uh, we'll get you on the list, and we'll have a class in preparation for that. One thing that was left out of the bulletin is uh, that this Wednesday, because of the start of college break, there will not be any children's ministries this Wednesday night. They resume the next Wednesday on March 6th. And also, if you're interested in, in doing something to help out from the uh, Hurricane Sandy uh, disaster, we are taking a team of primarily college students to uh, New Jersey to work for a week during the Easter break. So if you're interested in being part of that or knowing more about it, there's a, insert in your bullet, or there's a note in your bulletin related to that. There are also a couple of inserts, one about a dinner you're invited to in a couple of weeks. This is something we've done for a few years where we connect college students and senior citizens from the community and the wider community. Love to have you be a part of this dinner. There's a sheet to sign up for that. And also... Uh, the movie Camp, which is connected to what uh, we do with Royal Family Kids Camp, 
And uh, that's going to be shown on the 12th in Wesley Chapel, and you see information about that. I did just want to mention that, there, that it's totally my fault, but the, there's a wrong title in the bulletin for the sermon. And uh, not that that makes a big difference, but you might be looking at it thinking, what does the sermon have to do with that? Um, but the, the title of the sermon really should be The Danger of Truth. And uh, we'll be getting to justice next week. But I just wanted to, to give you a heads up as you think about that in our worship today. The ushers are going to come and help us as we uh, give our tithes and offerings back to God for all the ways in which he has blessed us.
This has been a, um, a difficult week for a number of people that are connected to this church. Earlier this week, long-time member of the church, Buddy Keith, died, and his service will be today at 4 o'clock here at the church. I want to pray for his family and their grief and loss. Also, earlier in the week, uh, 13-year-old Micah Christensen was diagnosed with lymphoma and has started treatments at Roswell. We also found out that um, Pani Zemanski, whose parents are here in the church and she's a student at the college, has discovered a tumor that is causing double vision for her and they're not even sure exactly what all is involved with that, continuing to test Betty Lou Pollock was in an automobile accident and she's had surgeries and she's at Strong. And this morning we, some of you may have may be aware as well, of a Houghton College student who is missing and the search is on. And, and I know that uh, there's great concern among friends and family. And I suspect there are other things in our lives that we are wrestling with and It's in these moments that we, perhaps above other times, cherish the ability to pray together. To join our prayers as one before God. As we pray, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as your place of prayer, maybe about a burden for yourself, maybe one of these burdens, maybe something else entirely. But if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as your place of prayer, please join me. Father, today we are burdened and weighed down with the stuff that's happened this week in our church and in our community. Father, we know that things come to us in this life, but they are hard. When they come to us and to those we love and those we care about. And so we pray today for your mercy and grace in the life and heart and mind of every person who is struggling today. We pray for Buddy's family. And we pray that you would comfort them and give to them your grace in this time of loss and death. We pray, Father, for Betty Lou and for Micah, for Bonnie, and for others who are struggling with living in a fallen world in these bodies that break down and contract diseases and get broken by accidents. And we pray your healing grace upon each of them. Father, we think about this college student that is lost and looking the searches on and we pray for your grace upon him. We pray for his family and friends who are worried. We pray for those who are searching. And we ask for your mercy in the midst of a very difficult, challenging situation. We pray, Father, that you will pour out your spirit upon on each of us and the other kinds of burdens that we may be facing today. Struggling with disappointment, 
unfulfilled dreams, uncertainty about the future, all of the elements of life that that bring to us worry and fear and doubt. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, through your loving kindness, we pray that you will minister your grace and your presence, your comfort and your peace to each person, each couple, each family. And that we would know that in spite of what's happening, you are good. Father, we pray for your grace upon our world. Pour out your spirit in mercy, in healing, in abundance of blessing. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you at this season of the year when we focus on the cross that we are reminded of the links to which you are willing to go in order to redeem us and to build relationship with us, to transform us, to love us. Overwhelm us today with your love. And we pray this through Christ, our Savior. And the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Early in the morning, Jesus was taken from Caiaphas' house to the governor's palace. The Jewish authorities did not go inside the palace, for they wanted to keep themselves ritually clean in order to be able to eat the Passover meal. So Pilate went outside to them and asked, What do you accuse this man of? We would not have brought him to you if he had not committed a crime. Then you yourselves take him and try him according to your own law. We are not allowed to put anyone to death. This happened in order to make come true what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he would die. Pilate went back into the palace and called Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Does this question come from you? Or have others told you about me? Do you think I'm a Jew? It was your own people and the chief priests who handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. No. My kingdom does not belong here. Are you a king, then? You say that I am a king. I was born and came into the world for this one purpose, to speak about the truth. Whoever belongs to the truth listens to me. And what is truth? Then Pilate went back outside to the people 
and said to them, I cannot find any reason to condemn him, but... According to the custom you have, I always set free a prisoner for you during the Passover. Do you want me to set free for you the king of the Jews? They answered him with a shout. Barabbas was a bandit. to die, poured out for all mankind. God's only Son, perfect and spotless one. He never sinned, but suffered as if he
Father, we give you thanks that Christ has overcome. Let the reality of who Christ is and what Christ has done ring true in our lives. Give us ears to hear as we continue in worship. Amen. Please be seated. It must have been an intriguing scene. Pilate standing there in front of Jesus. People telling him, religious leaders, people in authority, people who know, telling him that this criminal needs to be punished. Jesus has spent the night being interrogated by the high priest and they're finding it difficult to to pin anything on him. They can't do anything about it anyway. They want to see him they want to see him executed, and they don't have the power and the authority to do that. So they take him to Pilate, trying to convince Pilate that Jesus needs to die. And Pilate says, well, what's he done? And you notice that the religious leaders don't answer his question. They just say, trust us. You know us. We wouldn't lead you wrong. If, we, if he hadn't been done something worthy of execution, we wouldn't be here. Come on. I suspect Pilate sees through them, but he needs to do something. So he takes Jesus in. He has this interview with Jesus, and they get into this brief discussion about truth. Are you a king? He says, well, it's for this reason I came. To bear witness to the truth. And in fact, Jesus says, everyone who cares about the truth listens to me. And Pilate responds with the classic question, what is truth? I'm sure Pilate is thinking to himself, the guys standing outside who have brought you to me have made it clear They know the truth. And now you're telling me you are the truth. And you can see the wheels turning in his mind as to how to handle this. And we do see two very different perspectives about truth in Jesus and the religious leaders. And by the time they get outside, the people are calling for Jesus' execution and to release Barabbas. We don't know exactly how this starts. In, this, in John's version, the people just sort of, as it sort of comes out of them. Perhaps one of the religious leaders standing in the crowd says, give us Barabbas, and everyone else joins in. In some of the other gospels, Pilate is the one who says, do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? But however it begins, it ends with, give us Barabbas. And you have to wonder, what in the world would make the religious leaders want to connect themselves with Barabbas instead of Jesus. Because Barabbas is a, is, well, one translation says he's a robber, but that's a really weak description. He is an insurrectionist. We would call him a terrorist in our language. He has created riots. He's murdered people. He has caused uprisings against the Roman people. And this is the person you want me to release to you? Because over here you have Jesus who is a healer and compassionate and full of grace. And he cares about the poor and the outcasts. And he teaches what sounds right. He's all about what's good and healthy and right. And over here you have have Barabbas who represents everything that is not good and healthy and right. And yet here the religious leaders saying, give us Barabbas. Why would they do that? Because Barabbas is not Jesus. It wouldn't have mattered who Pilate said, who do you want? It would have been not Jesus. And you know, I've been, as I'm pondering that, I realized how often we, like the religious leaders, become so single-minded 
about what we want, about what we believe is true, about what we believe is right, that we don't realize how far afield we have gone to what is true and right. It's hard to read into the minds of the religious leaders. Are they doing this because Jesus is a threat to their power, which might well be the case? Or are they doing this because they truly believe they are right and Jesus is wrong? And I do think that's a big part of it. They they have convinced themselves that their way of seeing God, their way of understanding faith, their way of understanding what it means to be a follower of God is right. And anyone who disagrees with them is therefore wrong. And they're willing to do about anything to maintain what they believe is right. We've wrestled with that. We struggle with that. I I suspect, I know I do. I get so focused on what I like, what I want, what's, what's in my favor, that I don't even realize how far afield I've gone. When I was a child, I, I, I love sports, and when I was a child, I had three favorite sports teams. Um, well, I had a lot of them, but these are my three main ones. Growing up in southern Indiana, southern Ohio, the Cincinnati Reds were my favorite baseball team. Ohio State Buckeyes were my favorite college football team, and Indiana was my favorite college basketball team. Now, what's intriguing about them is that as I was growing up, the face of those three teams were interesting people. The Reds, it was Pete Rose. Ohio State, it was Woody Hayes, their coach, and for Indiana, it was Bob Knight, their coach. Now, If you know anything about those people, you wonder if I have a bit of sanity left in my mind because Pete Rose was banned from baseball and actually went to prison because he gambled on games when he was the manager of his team. And Woody Hayes was fired from his coaching job after a lengthy tenure and being the you know, this esteemed coach, he was fired at the end of a game when a opposing player intercepted a pass and happened to end up on the sideline where he was standing and he grabbed his face mask and punched him. Didn't last very long after that. And Bob Knight is infamous for all kinds of things that he has done. Throwing chairs and vulgarity and bullying and, and just, you know, this personality that a lot of people don't like. But here's the interesting thing, and particularly thinking about Indiana basketball. If you grow up in Indiana, and you're an Indiana basketball fan in those days, you make all kinds of excuses for Bob Knight. You know, there was a, there was a game where he got mad at a referee, and he took one of, these, one of the chairs, and he threw it across the court. And he was suspended a game or two for that. Someone was just saying to me the other day that if you're an Indiana fan, the explanation of that is he saw a woman on the other side of the court who was standing and needed a chair. Not because he was just angry and was throwing it at them. And, you know, you make excuses. He, he raised millions of dollars for the library. He, his, team, his players graduated. He never got in trouble with violations for doing things wrong. And, of course, it didn't hurt that his team won. And he was eventually fired from his job in part because there was a video that came out of him choking one of his players during a practice because he got angry. And I was talking with someone about that way back then. And they said, you know, they were talking about to their grandmother about it. And their grandmother said, well, if it's true, if the boy, if he did choke the boy, the boy probably deserved it. <laughs> I mean, that's how you think when you grow up in that environment, you, you know. You you make excuses. You don't even realize what you're doing. Because you get this single-minded vision of this is who we like and this is what we're for. And we just ignore all the other stuff. And we do that in our faith as well. We do that in what we believe is truth. And, And I'm not talking so much about the core things of our faith. Who is Jesus and and salvation? I'm talking about a lot of the other issues that we wrestle with in the church. How we view certain social issues. How how we how we what it means to be a follower of Christ. What's what's most vital? What's most important? Those are the things that we fight about. Those are the things that we become antagonistic about. Most churches don't split over deep theology. We split over things like the color of the carpet. 
and what time church is going to be and stuff like that. And we become so single-minded that this is most important and my perspective of it is most important. And we get so focused, we miss the big picture. And so you think back to, incredulously, you think back to, I'm incredulous in the sense of thinking about a captain standing on the deck of a slave ship reading the scriptures. I think about back in the, in the 60s during the civil rights movement and how most evangelical churches did not participate in the civil rights movement, were not supporters of the civil rights movement because we didn't like the theology of Martin Luther King Jr., And so instead of marching in Alabama like we should have been, we were sitting at home condemning him because we had different theological positions about some things. And those things became so important that we missed the big picture. And when you become single-minded like that, when you become so focused, sectarian, all kinds of bad things begin to happen. J.I. Packer, the theologian, says that there are four things that happen that are a part of ugly things about sectarianism. One is you have a sense of elitism. We're better than everybody else because we have the corner on the truth. And there's a sense of standoffishness where not only are we better, but we don't associate with people who don't agree with us. And, and we have this mindset of narrowness the only thing that matters, the only thing that's important, the only thing that's right is the history and the, and the people who are in our tradition. And of course, underlying all of that is this hidden arrogance that often masks itself in faithfulness. We're keeping the light burning. We're the only ones left. And unfortunately, when you have that mindset... We don't always treat people very well. It's that single-mindedness, that that warped single-mindedness that that created scenarios in the church through through the centuries where Christians murdered Christians because they disagreed theologically. Where we persecuted other believers. Or we persecuted people who weren't believers. Because they didn't agree with us. We couldn't see the big picture. And we totally missed what Jesus means when he talks about truth. Someone said to me not too long ago that maybe the big problem we have with the single-mindedness is that we don't really want to wrestle with those hard gray areas of life. And I think they're right. We like simple, straightforward, give me a formula and then I don't have to think anymore. Right? I mean, it's hard to think. And yet all the great things that we believe as Christians are are things that we have to think about. Because everything that's important to us is in some form or another intention. God is sovereign. Human beings are free. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully human. God's grace is what saves us. Our work is important for the kingdom. And we have to hold these tensions in balance and we have to think about how we live them out and how we process them and what it means for our lives. And there is no formula for that. And it's hard and it challenges us. And it's a lot simpler just to say, I don't want to deal with it. I'm just sticking with my tunnel vision. Uh, This is my perspective. I know it's right. Everybody else is wrong. Let me be. the greatest challenge to that kind of thinking is the cross. Because that kind of thinking that breeds arrogance is confronted at the cross. You cannot focus on the cross. You cannot think about truth in the context of the cross and be arrogant about it. It's impossible. If you really are are focusing on Christ and what Christ has done, it destroys 
the arrogance that so easily rises up in us that we have the corner on the truth, that we've got it all figured out, that we understand it. And if you disagree, you're wrong. And in the context of the cross, when you begin to understand truth in that light, there are some things that, that are imperative for us to understand. And one is that we, we, would, we are unwilling to use people as pawns in order to promote truth. That's exactly what we see the religious leaders doing in this story. They are using the people. You know, you notice in the, I think the video might have been fairly accurate that the people who were standing in front of Pilate condemning Jesus, they weren't the ones to say, give us Barabbas. They just planted people in the crowd to say, give us Barabbas. And they got the crowd all, all riled up to say, give us Barabbas. And they used them. And sometimes... We are so enamored with the truth. We are so enamored with our version of the truth that we use people and we manipulate people in order to promote our version of the truth. And the cross is continually confronting us about that kind of behavior. It's not really truth. If you have to manipulate people and use people as pawns to communicate this truth. Something is wrong in, this, in the way we think. There's something wrong with our perspective of truth if we are convinced that the only way we can communicate it, the only way that the truth can get worked out is if we manipulate people. I don't ever see Jesus manipulating people, using people, treating them like pawns in his scheme. In addition to that, if you are committed to truth in the context of the cross, we also are unwilling to cause pain to people unnecessarily in order to maintain truth. Now, people may disagree with us about truth, and people may may have a different opinion about truth, and we may need to discuss that, and they may feel like, you know, we don't understand them, But if we're really committed to the truth of God in Christ, we don't make decisions to unnecessarily hurt people in order to promote our version of the truth. Barabbas is this insurrectionist. And more than likely, what got him imprisoned in the first place is that he incited a riot. And when you incited a riot in Jerusalem in the first century, in first century Palestine, you could be assured, guaranteed, that the Romans were going to respond to that. And so as the religious leaders put forth Barabbas and they, and they are willing to let Barabbas be released so that Jesus isn't, they are putting the people of Jerusalem in jeopardy. Because Barabbas is the kind of guy who's going to go out and incite them again. And here comes the Roman hammer down on the people. And a whole lot of innocent people are going to be hurt. And sometimes in our quest for the truth, in our tunnel vision, our single-mindedness about our version of truth, we run over people. We let people get hurt. And something in our minds justifies that as well. The, it's about the truth. And the end justifies the means, but in the kingdom, it doesn't. Because the means is as important as the end. The way we communicate truth, the truth that we communicate, how we treat people in the, in the process of living out truth, all of that is the definition of Truth. It's not just what we believe, it's how we live what we believe. And if somehow believing the truth allows us to justify treating people poorly, hurting people, something is wrong with our understanding of the truth. We've skewed it. Because that's not Jesus, that's not the cross. And in fact, when we see truth in the context of the cross, what we will affirm and how we will live is with a willingness to be vulnerable so that people see and experience what real truth is. Jesus stands before Pilate 
and they have this conversation about truth. In that moment, I mean, Jesus could have snapped the ropes around his wrists. He could have grabbed Pilate by the throat and said, I'll show you what truth is. And taken out the whole place. And people would have been in awe of him and they might have even respected him. But there wouldn't have been relationship with him. Instead, Jesus stands there and in the next few hours is going to take a beating and is going to end up on the cross. And from the cross will cry out, Father, forgive them. And it's in that mindset of humility, in that mindset of surrender and sacrifice and vulnerability that we see the true definition and image of truth. In his book, Unchristian, what a new generation really thinks about the church and why it matters. David Kinneman tells a story about a friend of his, his name was Josh, who was a pastor in this Los Angeles area. Josh got a real burden about how people view the church. And, and as he talked to people, particularly college students, he, he realized that most of them viewed the church as arrogant. And he wanted to do something about that. So he convinced the leaders of the church, and it took a little convincing, but he convinced them to have a series of Sundays in which they would, as he described it, they would be the church that, um, a, con- a church that confesses its sins. And he sent out postcards to all over college campuses in their area, thousands and thousands of postcards. And on the postcard it said, we would love to invite you to our church over the next few Sundays to talk about this, the confessions of a sinful church. And here's what we're going to do. And they listed five Sundays of what they were going to do. And the first Sunday it said, we apologize for our self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And the second Sunday, we apologize for endorsing slavery. And the third Sunday, we apologize for mistreating homosexuals. And the fourth Sunday, we apologize for the medieval crusades. And the fifth Sunday, we apologize for saying that the earth is flat. The response was amazing. People said to them, and said in many ways, just sending out the postcards accomplished more than they had dreamed. Because all of a sudden, people who look at the church as a bunch of arrogant, know-it-all, corner-of-the-truth kind of people said, wow, this transparency is amazing. And you see, the thing about that is, as though we don't need to confess our sins, as though we are perfect, as though we have the corner on the truth, and, and so people began to come, and when they came, they, they, they were given a heartfelt apology about that particular day's subject, and they, and they, and the, and they heard a sermon that hopefully opened their eyes to, to a, a better perspective about the church's viewpoint on each of those issues. And, and the response was amazing. And at the end of, of his description... Josh says, I figured that people wouldn't listen to us until we got off our high horse and became real with them. We needed to recognize where there have been faults and sin. And then maybe people would be disarmed to the point of actually listening to the true message of Christ. I think he's right. We can talk about truth all the time. But as followers of Jesus, the only appropriate context for any discussion of truth is the cross. The cross of humility and sacrifice and surrender and transparency and vulnerability. 
And sometimes people will say, well, we're compromising the truth. Jesus didn't compromise the truth, not for a second. And yet, Paul says that Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He had all the rights in the world to say, I'm not doing this. I'm going to display my power. But instead, he took the nature, the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul prefaces those words by saying, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. My call for us is that we would be people who are so enamored with truth, with the truth of Christ, that we can't see it through any other lens and in any other context than the cross. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our sins of arrogance and pride. Forgive us for distorting the truth. And give us a new mindset, a new perspective, a new heart and attitude to see truth, to understand truth, in the context of the cross. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please stand with us. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you Different to
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.